All right, well, good morning, Redemption. Uh, my name is Josh Butler, one of the pastors here. Uh, Ricardo is in Nigeria this week. He just left yesterday uh, with some of the, uh, with a group of church planners, leaders that we've been involved helping with the church plant there. And so you can be praying for him and the team while they're there. Uh, if you have your Bible, you can turn to John 8, where we're going to be this morning. If you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hand, and our ushers would love to come and bring you one. All right, well, my grandma has a story that she loves to tell about me when I was a kid. I said something rude to her, something mean, I, I did something bad, and so I got in trouble. My mom was like, all right, you're, you're grounded for a bit. I had to go to my room. I was sad because I got in trouble, so I was crying. And at the end, you know, my mom brought me out. She's like, all right, I want you to go and apologize to your grandma. So I like, all right. So I walked over to my grandma, and my eyes were still moist from crying. And I walked across the room to her and kind of got up by her, you know, lap and looked up in her face. And she was like, yes, mijito, just like her Spanish term of endearment. And I was like, there's something in my eye. <laughs> my mom was like, did he say it? And she covered for me. She's like, yeah, he said it. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't. We don't like to admit when we're wrong, right? And it can be kind of cute as a kid, but it's not so cute when we're adults, right? And we're slow to admit when we're wrong, but we can actually be pretty quick to point out when others are wrong, right? Uh, and because of this, we can be judgmental. Like when someone does something wrong either to us or just in general, we want to use what they did wrong to kind of tear them down, take them down a notch, cut them down to size, uh, exalt ourselves over them. Or, on the other hand, sometimes we can not be judgmental, but we can avoid and ignore and be, be kind of the, the peacekeeper who pretends like nothing's wrong. We don't wanna, we wanna avoid conflict and not make a stir, so we just don't say anything. One of the questions we wanna look at this morning is how can we be honest without being judgmental? Like how can we have honesty without judgmentalism? We're in a series called Love Walked Among Us, where we're walking through the Gospels, and we're taking a look at Jesus, going, can we slow down and look not only at what he says, but how he interacts with people, uh, what his interactions are like, and what that teaches us about the nature of true love. This is God incarnate, the love of God in the flesh walking amongst us, that he can show us what true love looks like and how we can embody that love with others. <clears throat> And so this morning, we want to be looking at how can we be honest without being judgmental? And one of the things that Jesus teaches us that we're going to see is that the best way uh, to not be judgmental is to first own our own stuff, right? To first own our own part of the situation. That if you want to help take the speck out of somebody else's eye, the best place to start is looking and dealing with the plank in your own, right? So, because we've all got something in our eye, right? So if you would turn to the person next to you, look them in the eye and tell them, You've got something there. <laughs> We've all got something in our eye. All right, so starting in verse 2, it says, Early in the morning, Jesus came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. 
All right, well, let's stop there for a moment. One of the first things we see in this passage, one of the first questions that we should be asking is, where's Waldo? (laughs) The dude is missing, right? We see that they bring this woman who was caught in the act of adultery and newsflash, it takes two to tango, right? Like, she is not being accused of masturbation. That could be done solo. She's being accused of adulteration, and there's another party, there's another party who's not present, right? Now, <laughs> I want to preach. Here we go. All right. <laughs> now, now, there is often a way that we approach this passage where I think we, we can tend to approach this wrong. We can tend to go, hey, it's Moses or mercy, right? It's either, hey, stick to the law or, hey, just uh, lighten up a bit, right? And we can tend to kind of go, hey, is Jesus, are you going to be about law or are you going to be about grace? And we can tend to think, well, Jesus is going to go for grace by just minimizing and reducing the law. And what we're going to find is the opposite. Jesus is going to go to grace, but he gets there by going through the law rather than around it. He goes, all right, you guys want to play Moses? Let's do Moses. And when we look at uh, the law, uh, Old Testament law surrounding adultery, there are three main movements to the law. And what we're going to see here is that Jesus now walks through each of the three steps of Old Testament law, adultery. Step one, in uh, Leviticus 2010, uh, what the law stipulated was that if someone was caught, not just a rumor, not just a suspicion, but if someone was actually caught in the act, uh, that both parties, not just one, both parties were to be brought forward, dealt with. And uh, not only, uh, as far as caught in the act, it had to have two witnesses. So it couldn't just be, and one of those was neither of them could be the husband or the, the wife, it couldn't be the spouse. So you had to have two objective witnesses who actually witnessed the event firsthand and were so uh, willing to put their name on the line regarding the event that if they were found guilty of lying or entrapment or um, any kind of thing sketchy, if they had sinned in their judgment in the scenario, they would be liable to the death penalty as well. So step number one is kind of going, where's the dude, right? So they bring her, uh, this woman, and they say she was caught in the act of adultery yet she's the only one there. So when we see the Pharisees and the the leaders here, we find that they're looking at what's wrong with her, not at what's wrong with them. They are quick to find what's the fault. They're putting her under a certain standard, and they're refusing to put themselves under the same standard. And it is actually a double standard, that they are using their power and their privilege to excuse themselves from the very law that they're seeking to place her under. They are pointing out and focusing on and emphasizing the speck in her eye, and they are refusing to take a look at the plank in their own. And we find Jesus addresses this uh, many places, but Matthew 7 is one where Jesus says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? A speck is something very small. A plank is something very big. You're ignoring the big thing you got going wrong with you. So how can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And there is this reality that you and I can often, we we are often like the Pharisees. Like we are often quicker to find fault in others than we are in ourselves. We're quick to see the plank, you know, the speck in someone else's eye, and we're slow to recognize the plank in our own. This would be like 
walking up to someone and being like, hey, uh, your shirt's on backwards. And they're like, oh, thanks. Uh, you're in your underwear. <laughs> like, <laughs> like <laughs> you're bringing something small with them and ignoring the bigger thing going on with you. And people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, right? So I love uh, Paul Miller. Uh, he is the author of the book Love Walked Among Us. It has kind of been an inspiration behind the series. And he talks in there about uh, doing what he calls beam research, right? This practice of actually researching and asking yourself, when you have a conflict with someone, uh, asking yourself, what might be the plank in my own eye? What might be the, the two-by-four or the beam or the timber that I've got in my own eye? And going, <clears throat> I actually need to do some work of introspection to actually look first at, is there any complicity that I have in this situation? Is there any ownership, anything I need to own in this situation with this other person or this situation? And marriage has been my best mentor in this, right? Uh, so I think when Holly and I got first married, uh, we're newlyweds, and when we would have conflicts and stuff, right? I think I would be quick to kind of go, hey, Holly, you did this, you know? And she would be like, well, yeah, but you did this. And I'd be like, yeah, well, you did this. So, well, you did this. And pretty soon the defenses go up and we're kind of lobbing cannonballs at each other until ultimately, like, you sunk my battleship, right? Like, I'm going, I'm going home. And <laughs> eventually what I learned, sort of the trial of hard knocks, right, was <clears throat> that it was way more powerful, reconciliatory, healing when I would step into a conversation like that and start by owning my own junk first. Right? To actually step in and go, even, even if it felt like it was, you know, 90%, even if you think it's like 90% their fault and 10% yours, usually with Holly it's the other way, it's like 90% my fault, 10% hers, uh, but even if you think it's 90% their fault and 10% yours, being able to enter in and start by owning the 10% that's yours, being able to go, you know what, I'm sorry, I did this. And what I found is nine times out of 10, when you lead with that vulnerability, the other person already knows what they've done. And it lets down the walls, and then they're able to go, thank you so much for saying that. Actually, you know, I did this as well. And when we can lead with vulnerability and owning our own things, it changes your posture. And I don't think that, that this doesn't mean that you avoid or ignore that there's anything wrong. You know, I think uh, it's interesting. When Jesus says this, um, he doesn't say, don't take the speck out of your brother's eye. He says, before you take the speck out. Remove the plank out of yours so that you can see clearly to help your brother. I think what he means by that is when you deal with your own stuff, when you own your own junk first, it changes your posture. Where your goal is no longer to tear them down, to one-up, to exalt yourself, to crush them. Your goal is to actually see them restored and built up and made whole. And when we own our stuff, and I mean the reality is that people who need mercy are quicker to give mercy. When you've been forgiven much, it's much easier to forgive much. And when we own our stuff, it brings us before the God of all the universe who has shown us such extravagant, elaborate forgiveness in Christ. And that, that changes your posture. It becomes easier to forgive and show mercy and have a different posture in how you interact and deal with others and their own. All right, well, let's keep going. So what happens next? That's the Pharisees in this situation. Uh, now let's see, uh, how does Jesus respond to them? Verse 6b. It says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. 
I actually love it. I love Jesus' non-anxious presence, right? Like, there are uh, people coming going, dude, this is a life or death situation. We're at the temple, which was like uh, city hall, like the, the center of town, the center of the nation. Like, the crowds are all there. They've been listening to Jesus teaching, and it's like, the crowds are watching. It's life or death. Jesus, what are you going to do? He's like, I'm going to do a drawing. <laughs> and he's just undisturbed. And he's down there for a while, right? It's just they keep on questioning him. And this is, man, Jesus is awesome. So, <clears throat> so I love his non-anxious presence, but it says they kept on questioning him. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at him. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. All right, well, the next thing we see here is that Jesus doesn't lower the bar saying, hey, well, you guys are off too, and so I'm just going to lower the bar so that she can kind of hop over it. No, he raises the bar, says, everybody must get stoned. <laughs> I don't mean that kind of stone, right? <laughs> I'm from Portland, but I'm not a pothead. <laughs> but Jesus doesn't lower the bar so that everyone can hop over it. He raises the bar high enough so that we're all underneath it. He raises the bar so that we all find ourselves underneath it. When Jesus says, uh, he who is without sin, he's raising the bar. He's essentially saying, hey, if you don't live in a glass house, go ahead and throw the first rock. Right? If you're not standing there in your boxers, then go ahead and tell her her shirt's on backwards. Right? Like, if that's not a two-by-four I see standing in your retina, then go ahead and try and pick that speck out of her eye. Right? Like, he's calling them back on their stuff, and he's raising the bar, bringing them under it. Whoever of you is without sin. And it's also interesting, this phrase, the first stone, this brings us into the second movement of adultery law, right? Now, the second movement was if someone had been caught and they were brought and uh, there were these two witnesses, it had to be the, the two witnesses had to be the ones to throw the first stone. You know, this witness couldn't be uh, the spouse. It had to be someone that was somewhat objective. And part of the logic here I think, was to d deter like a mob mentality. Right? Where there's kind of this mob there where everyone would gang up and, and just get going and go, no, if you actually saw it, you've got to sign your name on this enough to actually, you've got to own it enough that you're going to put your own life on the line. If it gets found out that you're lying, if it gets found that you knew this was going to happen, this uh, sexual encounter, and you didn't act to try and prevent it or stop it from taking place beforehand, or if this was an act of entrapment and you were trying to set this person up, then you're going to come under the same penalty that you brought them under. And so I think Jesus, when he says he's without sin, he's not just saying, like, if you've never, ever sinned in your entire life. And he's going, in this situation, if any of you are without sin in this situation, if you're not complicit, if you don't have something uh, sketchy that's obviously going on in this scenario, then you go first. This was in Deuteronomy 17, 7. It's kind of law of the, the two eyewitnesses. So what we find here is that Jesus doesn't go around the law to get to grace. He goes through it. He doesn't lower the bar so the woman can jump over it. He raises it so that her accusers are underneath it. He doesn't excuse the woman's sin. He exposes her accuser's sin. He doesn't say you don't deserve punishment. He says you all deserve punishment. We find this in Romans 11, uh, verse 32, where Paul says, uh, that God has consigned all 
all to disobedience in order that he may have mercy on all. God has raised the bar so that it's not about us being good enough or trying to jump high enough or trying to perform well enough to make the cut, but rather that we all find ourselves in need of the grace and mercy of God that has come in Christ. And this is a challenge for today because I think often, uh, you and I, we often want to lower the bar, right? Uh, We see this in a lot of areas, uh, but this passage is about sexual ethics, and that's one of the big areas that I think we're tempted to do this today, so it's worth talking about. So let's talk about this for a minute. I think often uh, when it comes to uh, sexual ethics today, for many of us, um, because we don't want to appear judgmental, uh, we want to lower the bar, right? And so there's this reality, if you hold to a high view of sex, like what you believe, uh, we would believe God's vision and the church's historic understanding of God's vision for sexuality would be, there's a fear that I would be perceived as judgmental. And so if I say uh, that you should save sex for marriage, I might be accused of being a prude. If I say that I believe adultery is a horror that God hates that actually smashes the shalom, the flourishing, his vision for the family, you could be saying, well, you're being judgmental. If you were to say that, man, I think divorce like cracks the icon of Christ and his church, that he's embedded that marital union to signify, you could be told, well, you're just being naive. It's, that's the way it was back then. It's not, it's not for now. If you were to say that, man, I believe that God has designed marriage as the one flesh union of one man and one woman as the foundation for a family tied together, some might call you a bigot. If you were to say, like, man, I believe uh, porn is a problem, that it actually dehumanizes women and it shapes you, like the plasticity of your brain, like you're actually forming yourself with a view and a vision that dehumanizes the other, right? And you could be told, like, hey, come on, it's no big deal, just relax, right? And so I think many of us, because we don't want to be perceived as judgmental, the response is often we want to lower the bar, right? And maybe go, well... That was for back then, but Jesus came and just kind of say, chillax, right? Lighten up. Uh, that was Old Testament. I'm about something new, New Testament, right? And we kind of want to dismiss uh, the significance of the law and the bar that it did raise. And that can put us in an awkward spot when we find ourselves saying yes to things that God says no to. And it can lead to a disastrous place when we find ourselves uh, for leading ourselves or others to a place that feels more distanced distant from God, burdened with guilt, and alienated and just feeling confused in the weight of destruction downstream. And so we can feel caught going like, on the one side, if I hold this high view, I'm going to feel judgmental. On the other side, if I lower the bar, I'm going to feel like I'm being dishonest with what God really says. And Jesus says, yeah, there's a third way. The solution is not to lower it, it's to raise the bar high enough that you find yourself underneath it raise the bar high enough that we find ourselves underneath it. So what might this look like? I find when people uh, would ask me, like, hey, do you think adultery is wrong? My response would be like, yeah, and Jesus actually says, if I've even lusted after a woman in my heart, like, I'm guilty of adultery in my heart. And so I've actually got a problem, too. And as a pastor, I've often been asked, like, hey, do you think homosexuality is sin? My first response is usually, hey, I think American sexuality is sin, right? Like what we look to it for, our vision as a culture for what it is and what it means and represents, the ways that we pursue it and the things that we uh, lift up around it as a culture. And I am an American. Like much of that vision has infiltrated me. I got Babylon in me, right? When people ask, 
uh, about <laughs> pornography, I want to go, yes, and it's not only, uh, Jesus calls uh, me not only to not demean women, but actually use what I got to lift up and honor and care for, that he calls us as men and women to lift one another up and serve and care for, and I have to confess, I haven't always done the best job doing that. It's not minimizing other things as sin, but it's maximizing it in a way that your own sin is is in it too. It's not excusing sin, but it's being willing to, you know, it's not excusing sin, but the best way to be, avoid being judgmental is to expose your own sin before God. It changes your posture. Where suddenly we're all kind of common sinners in need of grace, beneath the a high bar, but also a God whose bar of mercy is so massive in his, his very character. So Jesus-centered compassion is raising the bar high enough to find yourself under it. As a side note, I think it's worth talking for a second about um, the law in the Old Testament. Uh, some people struggle here because it comes up a lot. Like, well, hey, are you picking or choosing? You know, like some laws, like if, if you're saying the law actually... Um, there's, there's some things we can learn from it, uh, but you still, are you saying we shouldn't eat shellfish or wear clothes with two different fibers or we should punish people on the Sabbath? Like, are you just picking and choosing certain laws? And one of the things that's helpful is to understand the church uh, has often historically used this, this language of three aspects of the law, the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral. And so as we look at these, uh, for Israel in the Old Testament, uh, the civil had to do, uh, these had to do more particularly this lens uh, with laws related to Israel as a political nation state, right? Going, uh, this is a country, a nation with a government and laws like um, any country has for kind of its social stability. But one of the things that's changed from Old Testament and New Testament is that uh, the people of God have gone from uh, the national nation of Israel to an international body of Christ, Gentiles, finding themselves in many different countries under many different civil societies and governments. And so uh, those laws no longer apply to us in the same way. Then you've got the ceremonial laws. And these were things like the sacrificial system and laws that helped distinguish uh, Israel from some of the surrounding nations and some of the practices that were associated with them. And that would include things like the shellfish and dietary laws or the clothes with two fabrics and stuff like that. And what we find here is that Jesus has fulfilled the sacrificial system. Jesus has uh, fulfilled... Uh, those things and has opened up the people of God to us, to Gentiles, those, uh, the, the Jewish and Gentile international body of Christ. And so the first no longer applies to, uh, the same way. The second, Jesus has fulfilled in and of himself, in and through himself. And then the third is the moral. And these are more like the ethical, like the Ten Commandments, for example, things that uh, are seen to derive from the ethical uh, character of God that's more universal and timeless. And these are things that um, they're usually clustered together in a section of the Bible together. And what we find in the New Testament is that Jesus not only affirms these, he actually intensifies them. He reaffirms them and he intensifies them. He tends to raise the bar even higher on these areas. And in Acts 15, uh, the Jerusalem Council, they were having to decide, okay, now uh, the international body of Christ, Gentiles are in, the church... Which parts of the law do we hold them to and which not? And they, in essence, say, hey, the civil and ceremonial we're, we're not going to. Uh, but the moral, particularly idolatry, idolatry and sexual immorality were the two big ones that um, were seen to carry over. 
what this means for us today is that if you're a follower of Jesus and you lower the bar on sexual ethics, then you're not really following Jesus, like at least in this area, right? And I believe Jesus is calling us to actually raise the bar high enough again that we find ourselves underneath it and in need of God's mercy. Okay, well, let's move to the next, the final movement here in the passage. We've seen kind of how the Pharisees come at this. We've seen how Jesus responds. And now let's see how uh, kind of more from the woman's perspective in the scenario and Jesus' interaction with her. Verse 9. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. I love how the older ones go away first. Like when you're a kid, you tend to think you got it all figured out, you know. Uh, but then when you get older, there's kind of the humility of realizing like, oh man, I, I messed up, right? The older ones walk away first until Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. What we find here is that Jesus brings conviction without condemnation. He brings conviction without condemnation. Try and put yourselves in the shoes of this woman. Like, what is she experiencing and feeling in this moment? <clears throat> Sometimes you don't go run into Jesus. Sometimes you get dragged kicking and screaming to Jesus, right? And I imagine if I'm her, uh, probably, she probably feels exposed, outed, humiliated, like you did something stupid and it went viral and now everybody's on you. This is like, uh, I, think, I think of this when we see like the online mobs today, right, where someone does something that maybe was legitimately wrong um, or dumb, but then suddenly everyone's rallying and uh, raise the cry of justice or righteousness and we want to pounce and destroy. I think Satan is an accuser and often Man, I think Satan and his demons are like an online mob that found something that went viral, and they're just trying to rally everyone to pounce and destroy. And she, in this this story, she's the target. She's on the receiving end of all this. Imagine she's feeling shame. I I messed up before God. And she's feeling embarrassment. This is public humiliation right out in front of City Hall, like the national capital. Shame and embarrassment, probably also fear. Like, I'm about to die by this mob of powerful people. And also anger. Like, the powerful were a part of this, but I'm the only one getting punished. And imagine if she's experiencing all this, and then as it's just her and Jesus, she looks, what does she see in his eyes? On the one hand, I think she sees nothing. Like, there's no plank in his eye. There is no sin he needs to remove first. Of everyone there, he is the one person who is actually above the bar, who actually could legitimately condemn her. He's got nothing. He doesn't need to do beam research. He doesn't need to pull anything out, right? And yet, on the other hand, I think she sees there's something in his eyes. It's love. It's the presence of love that is willing to call out what's wrong, but in order to restore and make her whole, with the goal of building her. So we see that Jesus uh, convicts her of her sin. 
And you, you might say, well, where? How does he convict her? Well, that has, that's the third movement in adultery laws here. I always used to wonder, like, why Jesus bends down and he writes with his finger in the sand again twice. What, what, what's going on with that? Well, this was actually the third movement in adultery law, where if someone, uh, if you couldn't find any witnesses and there was suspicion of adultery, but you couldn't really prove it, well, then it would go into what was known as the trial of jealousy. This is in Numbers 5, where they would uh, bring the person who was suspected, they would bring them to the temple before the priest. Did you notice where the scene takes place? Night opens, it's in the temple, and Jesus is teaching the crowds around him. So the picture here is Jesus is like the priest in the temple that she's being brought before to discern whether she's guilty or innocent. In this trial of jealousy, what would happen was the priest would get down on the ground and he would write in the sand, he would write the accusation against the person. And then he would sweep the dust with the accusation into a cup of holy water that the person would drink. And in John 7, just before going into this passage, Jesus has just said in the temple, I am the holy water. I am the living water of God. So Jesus, the imagery here is one of he is calling out, writing, acknowledging the accusation, and he is the priest that she has brought before. He is the living water that will mix with the accusation. And ultimately in this, this, this trial of jealousy, it was to be Yahweh who would discern whether they were guilty or innocent. She now stands before Yahweh in the flesh, embodied before her, God incarnate, who surfaces, discerns guilt. He says, go and sin no more. He acknowledges it and calls it out. Jesus doesn't ignore her sin, but he also doesn't condemn her for it. And similarly for us, Jesus tells us, go and sin no more. He doesn't ignore our sin. He doesn't condemn us for it. He calls us to come to him, and he calls it out, and he acknowledges and deals. He's honest with it. He's not dishonest. He doesn't pretend like it's not there and avoid the elephant in the room. He calls it out. He surfaces it. He brings it to light. He mixes it with the purity and truth of his very presence, the living water. He surfaces the accusations against us, and he discerns their truth or falsehood. But his goal is not to tear us down. His goal is to set us free. It's loving of him not to ignore our sin. Because when you recognize the seriousness of your sin, it magnifies the splendor of our Savior. Like when we recognize the seriousness of our sin, it illuminates and magnifies how glorious Jesus is, the splendor of our Savior. Jesus can set us free because he took our place. Uh, it's interesting, this John 8 passage, it, it opens here with, they bring the woman, it says, in the midst to stone her. And the passage ends at the end of John 8, where they're getting ready to stone Jesus, and he has to leave in the midst. Amen. There's this kind of bookends where uh, now her being prepared to be stoned has been swapped out with him being prepared to be stoned in the midst. And that phrase, in the midst, it doesn't show up much in John, but when it does, it's significant. And guess where the very next time this place shows up? When Jesus is on the cross, in the midst, two criminals. Jesus is exalted and placed in the midst. He takes her place. He takes their place. He takes our place. Jesus bears the condemnation that was ours to bear in order to set us free. 
believe we are the woman. Like, I think, yes, she's a, she's a person, there's a story, but I also think she's a representative for the church. She's depicted here. We are those, the bride of Christ. We are those, though, who were caught. We were caught doing wrong. We were caught falling short under the law. We were caught corrupted and twisted in the, the various things that we ran to you. And we were caught and we were dragged before God. Satan is an accuser. Our enemy is an accuser who takes what we've done wrong and before God says they deserve to go down. They deserve to die. We are those who have been rightly called out on our sin and uh, with the accuser who wants to condemn us. But we are also those that God has looked upon in love and entered into our condition to take our place in Christ in order to set us free. Romans 8.1 declares, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He comes, Jesus has broken the power of the law, not by going around it, but by going through it, bearing its curse himself. And Jesus now calls to us to go and sin no more. And so as we come to communion this morning, as we come to the bread and the wine, the body broken and the blood shed. We come to Christ who came under the bar of the laws, the one who was innocent and bore its weight upon himself in order to set us free. That in Christ we find the bar is raised so high we all find ourselves underneath it, and yet the extravagance of God's love comes and runs so deep that it's accessible for all to receive and be made whole. So as we come this morning, I want to invite you to come and bring your Bring your sin. If there are areas that you felt like I, I need to hide because uh, if, if this comes out, like I'm just going to get, man, just mobbed or whatever, whatever that, that fear is, that Christ, there's no fear in his love. We can come to him. We can bring him whatever we've got to bring. And we find in him one who is ready, yes, to convict and call out, but not to condemn, but to set us free. And we're going to actually do uh, practice communion a little bit differently this morning. So um, as we come forward to receive it, uh, we are going to do this uh, during worship. So uh, historically, uh, communion was like a celebration. Like the word Eucharist actually means to give thanks. And so we want to give thanks this morning for Christ who has given of himself to set us free. And so uh, in a minute, the ushers are going to come forward, and, and I'll pray. Uh, but rather than um, just kind of a few logistical notes, rather than kind of waiting or a time of reflection, we're, we're just going to start communion right as we enter into singing songs of praise and worship to God. And so uh, two kind of logistical things. Uh, it's okay. We're going to receive communion as we sing. And this is okay. We can walk and chew gum at the same time, right? Uh, <laughs> so nothing weird about that. And the second is, like, to take your time. Uh, often uh, we'll kind of, you know, have, have the long line and all, and I know it can feel awkward when you're staring at the person in front of you and waiting in the assembly line. Uh, so feel free to uh, come right away for some, but then if you see the line, feel free to wait for a bit and then come when the line uh, shortens down. But as we come, we want to come in a posture of worship, one that declares the splendor of our Savior because we recognize the extravagance of his forgiveness. Would you join me as the ushers come forward? Uh, would you join me in prayer? <clears throat>